Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. back listeners this is mike dave and i would like to thank all of you for joining us again we know that many of you have reached us thanks to our friends and neighbors to the north Stuart and anthony at the scale model podcast out of canada and likewise to our friends way down south in australia dave ian and julian at on the bench without their generous support and encouragement we would not have come along so quickly at this so make sure you're keeping up with all of their awesome content and please enjoy episode 12 of plastic model mojo well dave how are you doing tonight i'm doing good mike how about yourself well we had a nice weekend get outside and get some stuff done and get us good and tired now the rain's back so yeah we can do it we can do a podcast tonight (laughs) sounds like a plan so uh What's your modeling fluid of choice for tonight? Well, I'm going to defer to you first because I suspect we're drinking the same thing. No. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, all right. Uh, I am drinking Larceny 92. Uh, it's a product of the John Fitzgerald Brewery in uh, Bardstown. Uh, the Fitzgerald Brewery is known for a very low-end bourbon called Old Fitzgerald. Uh, Definitely not something that you generally want to drink straight, but it's a decent mixing bourbon. It's a common well drink, well bourbon. Yes, yes. Old Fitzgerald is a common well bourbon. Um, This is their attempt to step up into the next class of bourbons. Uh, It's it's not as expensive price point wise as say a bullet is. Uh, It's, uh, but it's more expensive than the old Fitzgerald. Uh, It's the 92 comes from its proof. Uh, It's 46% alcohol. So it's uh, 92 proof. And, uh, it's a little interesting, at least as far as I'm concerned. Um, I had some neat uh, to test it out. I usually, with any bourbon, the first thing I do is have a little bit neat uh, because sometimes ice can change the, the taste. But uh, the thing about this, there's the caramel notes and the vanilla notes that most bourbons have. And the thing that I noticed about this Number one is it almost seems watery, even without ice in it. It it somehow seems watered, watery or watered down. And then the finish on it has a little bit of alcoholic bite that's not exactly pleasant. Um, you know, some some bourbons on the back end you get. You get a little, you get the the sting of the alcohol, especially with a higher proof bourbon. But it's usually not unpleasant. For some reason, this one leaves almost. 
I don't want to call it smoky and I don't want to call it metallic, but it's something in between the two. And so it's an interesting drink. It's not the favorite, not my favorite bourbon ever, but uh, it's kind of an interesting drink. So what are you drinking? I'm drinking the exact same thing because I was mistaken when we discussed this earlier. I've not had this before. Okay. And I was in the market, so I said, why not? And I think I think this Larceny has a buttery aroma to it. Mm-hmm. And I think it has a solid honey note uh to the flavor. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Um I don't quite get the watery thing you're getting, but it does have a there's a charcoal kind of kind of finish on it. Yeah, that's that, yeah. that's it. Which could, that's not that's not uncommon, um, but it's a little more pronounced in this one. One right. thing I noticed about it is the color. Yes. It's very warm, leaning toward yellow. It's almost God, it's almost iridescent. It's like mm-hmm. a so I like it. It's not my favorite like yours, but uh, I thought I'd give it a shot since you're going to do it. We'd try the same thing for once. Yeah, that's a, that's a good idea. Great. We can spin off a podcast on bur- bourbon comparisons. Well, uh, about five minutes on this one, so we don't have a bourbon podcast. Okay. Well, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it. This will get me through the rest of the episode for sure. So do we have any listener mail? We had quite a bit of listener mail. Tell me about it. This this, asking people to answer questions is kind of works. Yeah. Let's see. From Mr. Jim Unger from Rhinelander, Wisconsin. He must have been mining back through our episodes, and he brought up something on our American Model Company episode a ways ways back now. Um, He mentioned a company we missed. Uh, It's a car a car model company. That's Salvinos JR. I don't think it's junior because it's capital J, capital R. Yeah, I'd never heard of them. And a couple of their kits, I think, maybe old Ravel 24 scale molds, but all their 25th scale stuff is their own. And it's all classic NASCAR, like pre-1987, definitely pre-stickers for headlights. <laughs> I hate that. Don't get me started on stickers for headlights. They don't have a lot of cars yet. Uh, you know, well, I don't know. I don't know what a lot would be in this genre, but I mean, it's Richard Petty, Buddy Baker, Bobby Allison, Cale Yarbrough, Rusty Wallace. I mean, all the guys you were, when you were burning around the block on your bike with your buddies, you were one of these guys. I mean, these are like the su- Sunday afternoon heroes for, from our age group. Yep, exactly. Our gender. I remember Buddy Baker so, so clearly it wasn't funny. So if you're into NASCAR, and I mean, NASCAR when it was, was really a car. Uh, you might want to check out uh, Salvinos Jr. Uh, they've got a they've got a website, and I looked on their their you know where to buy, and mm-hmm. it looks like uh, Scale Reproductions in Louisville has, has had them has sold them before. It's because they're mm-hmm. in their distribution list, so uh, worth a look. Well, you will definitely have to put a link in the show notes. I'll put a link in the show notes. Now, I, one other comment about that: that's got to be a licensing minefield. Yeah, with all the little logos that are sometimes on the side of, of uh Oh yeah, our, like our right behind, right 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 behind the front wheel on the door area. Yeah. What used to be a door? I mean there's yeah. like 
there might be four, there might be 15 sponsor decals on there. Plus the big ones on the, on the yep. hood and sides. And then the maker of the automobile got to throw that yep. in there too. So it's like, it's a Monte Carlo or it's gotta be, be a GM license or whatever. Yeah. My goodness. Uh, if anybody knows anything about that, let us know. I'm, I'm be real curious because I know back in the eighties, like when, you know, the, the, uh, some of the later, race race some of the later schemes in this guy's this company's lineup or you know in the late 80s um 86 87 and there was a company called j and j decals uh that was that's when nascar was really getting popular in the united states and they they were it was an aftermarket company but it was uh kind of i think they got in some licensing issues and they went away pretty quick well and not to not to divert us too too far off the subject of modeling but i can tell you um, I've had some minor legal experience in this area and the, the, uh, licensing issues for, uh, I know, uh, a guy, a person whose podcast I listened to did a book on vodka and going back and having to do all of the, obtain all of the licenses for all of the different vodkas he featured in this book that was the history of vodka and the history of vodka distillers was just a minefield. And that's, there are a lot of, of really interesting history books that don't get written because of this, that particular problem. Well, back, back to modeling it. Well, not exactly back to listener mail. Anyway, uh, I'm going to paraphrase this in a little bit because it's not completely modeling related. Um, Pete Kulos from Point Pleasant Beach, New Jersey. I don't know if that's a Jersey Shores area or not. Maybe all the beaches are Jersey Shores. I don't know. Never been there. Anyway, uh, he starts out, I'm happy to find out I'm not the only one who pours an adult beverage before sitting down at the bench. <laughs> so I'll, I'll paraphrase again. He, he's, he's, a, he's a beer guy. And he talks about uh, well, lager styles like Pilsners, Vienna lagers, etc. Taste better chilled. Um, many of the high ABV ales and brew beers uh, actually get better as the temperature comes up. And he mentions bourbon barrel aged stouts, Belgian triples and Belgian quads and barley wines. Now, if you're going to sip on these, I guess that's pretty good. But some of those triples and quads, oh man, that's like, that's worse than what we're drinking tonight. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I'll tell you, you know what? And that may... I generally don't enjoy uh, triples, and I'm wondering if maybe at least part of that problem might be that I drink them as if they're just a regular beer, and so I drink them more chilled than maybe that they're intended to be. That's an interesting idea. I'll have to look into that. All right. Well, thanks, Pete. We'll keep that in mind. So that his point was, those are beers that don't get warm on you while you're working on your model. Yeah. Or they get better if they do. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I got a short one here from uh, Doug McLean. He sent us a picture of his uh, Hobby Boss F5E Tiger II in 72nd scale. Now, I think, did you oh, mention yeah. that plane? Yes, I did, because uh, okay. Wolfpack, Wolfpack Designs has announced a release of a new 72nd scale F5E. So he was just sharing, but I want to make a point that I've a lot of folks have sent us pictures and I, there's a listener gallery coming. I promise. Now they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Uh, hopefully I won't be another cobblestone in that road. Uh, but 
we've got a lot of pictures and I'll make sure this one gets in there. When I first got it, I thought it was Doug from Indy again, which is actually Doug Oliver, the guy doing the prototype modification to the Tamiya work stand. And I hadn't heard from Doug Oliver in a while. So Doug Oliver, if you're listening, give us an update on that and see what's going on. All right. Timothy Young from West Yorkshire, England. We're getting a lot of these from the UK. Mm-hmm. Third biggest country that we're listened to in. Hello, guys. Loving the podcast. Normally listen on the way back from work, but since I'm at home at the moment, just catching up on recent episodes. Listen to episode nine about your about how you plan projects. I'm primarily a one to one forty fourth aircraft builder, but with a model railroad background, so I like to make scene scene. Normally with two or more planes. So I often look at projects where I can combine a few different elements from the same period, especially if I had two kits in the stash with Iris decal options. So I combine these to make an Irish airfield scene. For example, maybe he's also Irish. I don't know. He doesn't say. The problem, I sometimes can't stop combining ideas. So I end up with scheming up massive multi-kit projects that never get around to starting. <laughs> oh, I've never, I've never heard of such a problem before. Have you? Well, in the project in, in the project management world, that's called scope creep. Yep. Listening to episode 10 was funny because at the time I was painting some 15 millimeter wargaming figures, something I had never done before. I just picked them up super cheap and had planned on making a fantasy diorama with them. I try to keep the hobby varied by making every third build something aside from a 144th airplane, avoids it becoming monotonous, and by and by choosing unusual subjects like dioramas made for model railroad center, scenery, gives you something eye-catching at the club events, too. Keep up the good work, and thanks for the bourbon recommendations, Timothy Young, West Yorkshire, England. P.S. You discussed tune kits in episode 10. My wife builds a lot of these, particularly the Hmong tune tanks. They're actually a really good way to develop skills, including painting, weathering, plus she combines them with 35th scale figures and accessories to make dioramas. Now, once again, here's another guy got his wife into this, Dave. I'm telling you, yep. Ruthie, Ruthie's <laughs> going to do it. I don't think so. Uh. <laughs> you don't? What, 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 if they did a Hello, what if they did a Hello Kitty tiger tank? Uh, I don't know. But it, I've told you the story of the first time my, my wife saw my, my model room and my model collection. We've been dating about two or three months, and I finally decided, you know, got to got to let her know at some point. So uh, uh, one day I, she over at my house, I show her the model room and the model collection. And she turns to me with a dead serious face and goes, what were you thinking? But she married me anyway. So I'm counting that as a win. Uh, we have Eric Kinser and based on his email address, I think he's from the Oxfordshire region of UK. So that's two from the UK. Hi, guys. Enjoying the podcast for the relief of the daily COVID nightmare. The way I tackle the issue, and the issue is in the subject column, which I didn't read, is crossing uh, crossing scale and genre. Gotcha. The way, I tackle, the way I tackle the issue is to model only those things where some member or members of the family have had or had a connection to the subject. This immediately forces me to deal with scale and genre. And man, he's got some doozies in here. 172nd Airfix Swordfish. My mother-in-law's wartime boyfriend was an observer on the 1940 uh, Taranto raid. Did I say that right? Yeah, you said that right. Where is that? Italy. It's where, the, it's where the British fleet 
caught the uh, Italians in a surprise attack using uh, swordfish biplanes and ended up inflicting uh, pretty serious damage to the Italian fleet. And some people credit that with giving uh, Yamamoto the idea for Pearl Harbor. Which led to a heller, one one four hundred hundred scale illustrious. The carrier they flew off of. Which led to a 172nd Valum, uh, I hope I can say this right, Albemarle? Yep. Uncle-in-law worked at the plant where this was made, which led to the one one six hundred or one one sixtieth Lindbergh LCAD. I bet that was a fun building. Oh, <laughs> oh so man. his dad his da- his dad was on that sh- on a, on the, on one of those or that ship in nineteen forty five, which led to a seventy second all resin retro kit AEC Clubmobile. After a thoroughly enjoyable Great British Bake Off episode, donuts for the doughboys. <laughs> That's some modeling. That's right, which led to a one four hundredth Mary Rose from Airfix after visiting the museum and the preservation in Portsmouth. Yep, I'd like to see that. Which led to the flagship models one one ninety second Casco class, a Civil War monitor that my great great grandfather in law built. He built that ship or helped build that ship. Yeah, and apparently he's got somebody in the veterinary corps because he's considering a diorama of a World War One veterinary scene where his great. Yeah, his great uncle in law was a military veterinarian, apparently. So huh. vehicles, planes, and ships. So vehicles, planes, and ships. Everything connected to something in the family. Yes, <laughs> some not so great kits, though. Yeah, well, and that's truly crossing scale and genre. I mean, when you're jumping from seventy second to one six one one sixtieth to to one six hundred, that's uh, that's eclectic. But it's it still has a theme. It's a collection. It has a theme. It is. Having guests at his house must be fun to talk about his model collection. Sure. Uh, Dave Waples writes this again from Denver, Colorado. Enjoying the podcast. I'm following up on your question about modeling across subjects and mojo. This one's really interesting. Uh, every Easter, I build an egg or a cute, distorted, whatever you want to call them, subject. It's nice to have something that isn't too serious and fun to build. But as Dave has a problem with decals, I have a problem not building out of the box. (laughs) (laughs) This Uh, year's build is from Fujimi. They have a series of kits they called uh, Chibi Maru. I have no idea what, if anything, that means. They are Imperial Japanese Navy subjects, mostly. And there's photo etch and wood deck upgrade parts for these that's interesting oh so they got they've, they, they've got upgrades for 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 eggs and tunes now oh my lord sometimes sold together sometimes sold separate if you want to try a ship and experiment with these types of upgrades this is a great way to cut your teeth very little cost is they go together well they go together in about two weeks and they're fun that's that'd be fast for me yeah that's important uh, fun the name of the ship is the isa or isa <laughs> But uh, interesting. We'll get to that. We might get to that in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> and he's got, he's got, I'll put the picture in this uh, soon to be done at some point uh, listener gallery. He's got uh, a rising sun base and a, to me, a dome case to go over it. So cool. Looking nice. This is a long one. Um, I'll paraphrase a little bit. It's from uh, Rob Miller from Oakland, California. 
And he normally builds 48 scale aircraft, real space, and sci-fi. And uh, another one of the uh, guys uh, trying to avoid the dark specter of AMS. Now, AMS, I don't know if that's a global modeling term or not. Um, Maybe. Australian modeling syndrome? (laughs) No, I don't think it's Australian (laughs) modeling syndrome. Advanced modeling syndrome. Yep. Which is... uh, getting down to the brass tacks and uh, getting really so far into a project that uh, they really slow you down. And sometimes you, you lose sight of it even while you're building the damn thing. So he's picked a few kits that are, I don't know what to say. Just thought they're cool and new, new subject. He built a 135th scale, uh, to me, Achilles two C, which is uh, the British version of the M 10, I think. Right. Tank destroyer. And a, uh, he watched Amazon Prime's The Grand Tour about Formula One racer Jim Clark and built a 120 scale Lotus 42. Mm, beautiful car. And what his takeaway from all this is uh, what did he learn? He's got a, quite a bit of information on that. But for the Achilles, it was uh, figure painting and simulating wood grain on Pioneer tools and that sort of thing. And then having to rethink the way, uh, like for a lot of armor kits, you can build the entire kit up front and paint, paint at the end. Yeah, a uh, little, little harder to do with an airplane. So he had to kind of re- reorder his uh, way of thinking. And uh, the Lotus was uh, a lot of paint, mask, and polish, lacquer finishes, dechroming and remetallizing parts, wiring an engine, that sort of thing. So the net is stepping out of preferred scale and genre exposes me to new techniques, products, tools, and subject matter. Indeed it does. That's a good point. Yep. And, you know, I just list, I just listened to the latest on the bench from the Australians and Julian makes makes that comment that uh, everyone should uh, try a different genre every now and then because you're going to learn something. I, I agree wholeheartedly. The be- Again, as I said in that episode, the best modelers I know, while there are some that, that concentrate on just one thing and one scale and all, some of the best modelers I know are guys who will be building a uh, 35th scale tank one day and a 24th scale NASCAR car the next day. I mean, and, and they, the skills cross across the, the things they learn on one project apply on another. And lastly, Alex Restrepo from Louisville, Kentucky. Do we know him? I think I know him. Sounds Colombian. Him? Yes, that does. Uh, let's see. Hey, Mike and Dave, a few months ago, several club members, Dave included, attended a tour at a 3D printing facility. Yeah. Now, this is the, the he was worried Ed, who is our club member who hosted that event, would may not want the facility named. I, I don't think that's true because it's public access, right? Right. Yeah, Please no, tell I, me what that is again. What it is, is it? Oh, what is it called? I'm trying, there's a specific name for it. It's affiliated with the University of Louisville, but it's not actually part of the college. And it was one of the coolest tours I've ever done in my life, getting to see them do things with 3D printers, printing really high-end metal, uh, doing stuff for the Department of Defense. They had tissue printers where they print actual living tissue uh it just mind-blowing and the name of the place i cannot remember off the top of my head but it has an official title we'll put it in the show night show notes 
I, I was just curious. It's not really so relevant to what he's asking here. Regarding the 3D printing, what kind of influence do you think this technology will have on the hobby? Keep up the good work on the podcast. Well, thanks, Alex, for listening to our podcast. Hope you hope you like it. It's not just some good old home cooking. Uh, I talked to Alex at that tour, and he had just discovered our podcast, uh, which is kind of sad when you consider how long we've been doing it for like two months. Uh, so maybe we need to advertise a little more. But in any event, uh, he was very enthusiastic about it. Um, let me give you my quick two cents. I think that 3D printing will have a significant impact on our hobby in the next five to seven years. Because right now it is just getting to the point where cost-effective 3D printing for the hobby segment, where the quality is such that it's really usable in the hobby is just right getting close. And I think three to five years down the road, um, you're going to see a lot of stuff done that currently is done in resin, particularly in conversions that are going to end up being done in 3D printing. If the process time and cost can achieve some reasonable parity i think that might be true yes uh i I think already like the wheels the wheels from hussar up in canada for my zis 2 anti-tank gun are 3d the masters were 3d printed yeah so right now it's, it's very viable already in that sense where you you generate a complex master using this but then use a better economy of scale with traditional resin casting to make multiples. Yeah. Um, the, the issue is with 3d printing, at least I, I've been out of an engineering role now f- for about four years where I, I had a lot more visibility to this, but, and a lot has changed in that amount of time. Amazing. Wrong. Have changed. Yeah. Uh, but, but still the thing that's still the big struggle is as resolution goes up, so does process time. Yes, it does. So it's you have to get to a good enough kind of level where, you know, a, a good layer of primer or some minor final finishing gets you over the bump, at least for now, mm-hmm. um, to get a good part. And I think we're there. For the printing now, there's there's a level there that's adequate, if not even in achieving beyond that, that's, you know, usable without doing anything extra to it other than painting it. Um, but the problem is it takes time to print the part and that's, that's where the thing kind of gets a little hairy. Yeah. And that's where I, where I'm talking about three to five years in the future, because one or two generations beyond where we are now. And you know, the, in, in general, the rule is every 18 months you get a, a new generation that's, that's, you know, markedly improved over the previous so three to five years, two generations down the road, I am thinking that we're going to have the resolution combined with the speed and the inexpensiveness of the material where 3D printing really takes a larger and larger role. You know, there's there's a modeler in Europe somewhere. I can't remember where he's from, but he does a lot of uh, laser cut 
masonite and plywood. And I think he built the Remagen Bridge. Have you seen yeah. that? No, I have not. But I've seen some of stuff like that. And it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, because it, 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 it's it's complex. He's he's a good, he's a good designer, and but it's it's my point is I won't go into that too much detail. But um, using that kind of technology to your the, the works and the research and the and the engineering of the thing and the actual model building when you're done is is a lot less complicated, but a lot more accurate and a lot more with a lot more precision. You've put it, you put all the work in the, in the CAD and this, this, this laser cut parts and, and the way they fit together has really simplified the scratch, the, the building part of it. Um, well, you know, we need to do, we need to mark it down and do an episode some point in the future regarding technology and the future of modeling. Cause there's a, a number of things that I see coming down the road and not just 3d printing that are going to, um, have an impact on our hobby. I think you wanted to generate some discussion. So we, we had a little discussion there and we'll, we'll mark that down and consider that for a future, uh, special segment. Sounds good. Uh, this is the point at which I beg everybody. If you're listening to us on whatever podcasting application you listen to us, if you please take a moment to stop and rate us, give us five stars, um, we're not doing it for aggrandizement. If you do that, what happens is the algorithms move our podcast up and more people see it. So if you take a moment and, uh, and give us five stars and whatever uh, podcast app you're listening on, we would appreciate it. So Mike, uh, tell me, uh, what's your bench look like? What's uh what you've been building? Where are you, man? It looks like a, it looks like an ant farm. <laughs> it's I got stuff all over the place. So tell me. Well, all my paint phase projects are kind of on hold. Uh, I've had some serious misfortune with my airbrushes uh, in recent weeks, but I think that gets rectified tomorrow. Yay! Via the United States Postal Service. All right. So that will get the that will get the Zis back on track, and that will get my little Airfix Bofors combo on track. So what you've been doing? Well, I'm I'm you know I've been hinting and teasing and buying for, for this float plane catapult rabbit hole. I'm starting down. Wait a minute! So. You're building a plane. What scale would that be in? Well, I'm working currently on. Uh, Fujimi's uh, Aichi E16A1. That would be the Paul by uh, Allied Code Name or uh, Zuyun in J- Japanese, which uh, apparently means auspicious cloud. Mm-hmm. Interesting translation. Yeah. Um, this is the this is the this is the uh, boxing with the with the catapult, and it's it's uh you know I'm crossing scale and genre here for sure. And uh, I'm trying not to get too wrapped up in the in the details for for a couple of reasons. Um, one, after looking at this kit, and Hasegawa has a similar kind of offering, or, or a couple actually. Yeah, actually, too, the Alpha and the Jake, both with a catapult. I suspect there's a bit of gizmology going on on the part of Fujimi with this thing. It's 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 not bad. It's 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 a good looking catapult in the end, but, uh, 
I, I just suspect that uh, they've made some assumptions or or something like that. Uh, reference is a little sparse. I'm finding because I, I, I've never researched ship stuff before. So somebody out there listening is going like, "Are you kidding me?" There's God, there's tons of stuff on this. You just haven't looked here yet, which is probably true. But anyway, the, the other reason is there's there's no aftermarket for this guy. So back to back to AMS. Um, there's, there's a low temptation to try to, you know, home run this thing. Yeah. Well, it's your first catapult. You've got others coming down the road and, uh, any listeners out there with a Japanese ship background who can provide Mike with all of the, everything he ever wanted to know about Japanese ship catapults, particularly on the Issei and the Hyuga, uh, you know, Inundate his inundate the the plastic model mojo email at plasticmodelmojo at gmail.com and give him all sorts of reference. And when you do, it'll absolutely drive him batty. I think that's the most passive aggressive thing you've ever done to me. <laughs> well, maybe. Maybe. Well, back to this thing. Um I, I'm, I, the instructions start with a catapult. So that's where I started, obviously. Uh, there's lots of sink marks and Fujimi loves robust sprue gates and ejector pins. <laughs> well, um, this is the 1980s. Keep in mind, this is late 80s, early 90s. Well, you know, in their defense, the the, the thin profiles and, and things, I understand why all this is there, having done some injection molded parts in my engineering career, it, it makes sense, but wow, there's a lot of them. Um, the catapults coming along nicely. I had to replace some, some details that I had to remove to fix some sink marks. And I've posted most of this on the Facebook page. There's been some fundamental scratch building and jig making, which I, I really enjoy that working through that kind of stuff. It's kind of a, a Zen walk in the Zen garden for me, actually to do, to do sort of those things, especially when I'm, just replacing kind of what the, what they botched by like access hatches that have sink marks running through them. How are you going to fix that? Hard, hard to you believe get... you're an engineer by trade. Hard to believe. <laughs> uh, everything has come out pretty nice. Um, if anybody else is building this or going to build it, it's worth dry fitting the, the, you know, the catapult's a big box truss, right? It's got a top, a bottom and two truss sides. Right. Uh, it's worth it's worth dry fitting to see what actually needs to be cleaned up because some of it might be hidden. Um, I went ahead and cleaned up everything because I'm going to probably apply my more armor centric weathering techniques to the catapult. And as soon as you put a wash across something that's got a sink mark, you think you're not going to see. Well, guess what? <laughs> yeah. And actually, also the final assembly of the catapult looks a little dodgy if you follow the instructions because the top of the catapult fits between the sides, but the bottom just mates up kind of butts up to the bottom. And they, they want you to start with the bottom and build everything up based on my interpretation of the instructions. And I just don't think that's going to work. It's going to be hard to get it square, et cetera. Yeah. Reverse um, that. Yeah. I'm going to reverse that. And I'll, I'd like to cable it because I think that's something it needs even in 72nd scale. I you agree. Know where the cable where the cables go and I'm trying to work that out and I haven't done that yet. So if somebody can send me cabling information for this type catapult, that'd be great. 
and I'm about to begin the aircraft very soon. Oh my God, I'm going to build an airplane. Oh, yay. I've got him. I've got him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> welcome to seventy second scale aircraft modeling. One or welcome back. Welcome back to it. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, you go. you're going to get some questions from me right off the bat. So be That's ready. Right. I'm here for you, Mike. Not a problem. No. Okay, well, that's be, that's there's gonna be some reciprocity there too. Okay, well, that's my rundown. What are you working on? Well, Knights Modeling Industries is humming along at a really good pace. Uh, the MiG 17 is out of the paint shop, it's had its decals put on. Um, I'm using the extra cal decals for the one and only Burkina Faso MiG 17. And to say that I'm impressed by these extra cal decals understates the matter. Uh, some of the finest decals I've ever used. Uh, but it's out of the decal shop and it's just getting ready, ready to get weathered. Um, the AS-1 uh, Soviet missile, cruise missile, is uh, kind of trapped in the paint shop right now. Uh I need to get back to it, but it's it's kind of stuck, and other things have attracted my attention. So I've got to find a way to to finish that up because it's uh, not far from being done. Uh, the Bibber uh, German, the Special Navy seventy second scale Bibber uh, German midget submarine is just about done with construction and will be moving into the paint shop. Uh, probably sometime in the next week or two. Um, I need to uh, spray some metallics and uh, for the torpedoes. And frankly, I don't want to spray any more metallics uh, until I'm done with the MiG-17 simply because I don't want to run any, even though I'd be using different airbrushes, I don't want to run any risk of getting any metallic into the, finish on the MiG-17. Um, and then, surprise, surprise, uh, you know, I felt that if I'd sucked Mike into 72nd scale aircraft modeling, it's only fair that, uh, uh, that I step into his genre. So on his recommendation, I picked up the 35th scale trumpeter, uh, M30 Soviet 122 millimeter howitzer, uh, 1938, the early version. And uh, I'm just about to begin building that as soon as the bibber moves over to the paint shop. The uh, uh, the so big Soviet field gun's going to move into the construction shop. So, uh, Knights Modeling Industries is humming along and uh, barring any problems, uh, we should see some finished kits soon. Well, I can't decide if you're modeling circles around me or not. I, I think you are. I don't think I'm modeling circles around you. I, I may have one or two more items going, but uh, I think that probably your 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 issue is the lack of the ability to paint right now. But <clears throat> Well... We got a, I got a long weekend coming up, so I'm get, get my airbrush fixed yeah. and take, taking two days vacation on a long weekend and got Memorial Day coming up here in the United States. And I've got, well, it's a five day weekend. God, I got to get some, I got to get some painting done. 
Yeah, you got to get some models finished. That this needs to be done. I know. Well, <laughs> we'll see. We'll get some paint. <laughs> we'll get some paint on it. That, that, that <laughs> sounds like progress. Well, on the other front of modeling, not the building part, but the buying part, uh, what what broke your wallet in the last uh, oh, God. few weeks here? This is kind of humiliating. Uh, um, I've been spending money. Uh, hopefully my wife doesn't listen to this podcast and hasn't discovered it yet, and I'm doing everything I can to make sure that she doesn't. Um, what? Mine follows the Facebook page. Yes, I know. Uh, please make sure that Robin doesn't talk to Ruthie. Um, well, the aforementioned uh, uh, M30 trumpeter kit, uh, I talked to Mike. I told Mike I wanted to do some Soviet piece of uh, artillery or any aircraft artillery or any tank gun. And Mike... Uh, generously recommended the tr- the trumpeter kit so i purchased it so uh what's well, it's an iconic gun yes yeah that's one thing that you've bought that's all you bought no i've got others but i was going to go back and forth oh, okay we can do it that way too too many airbrush parts no it sounds like not enough if they're not running yet well the last one's going to show up well it's it's been twofold i i I had a problem and I ordered the part for that. And then when I was putting it all back together, I broke something else. So we've all done that, but that won't be, I won't, I'll, I'll double up here. Cause that's not very earth shaking. Um, I've, I've picked up a, a lot of the Tamiya paints I need for this, uh, catapult and aircraft. I've, I've got all their, uh, Imperial Japanese Navy grays. Yep. Uh, I just need a couple for this, but I got the others because I've got a, another project I'm thinking up, thinking of down the road, and also got uh, their primary aircraft colors, the exterior colors. I got the uh, the green and the gray I need for uh, for the E16. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Tamiya colors are great for that, especially if you thin them with uh, Unicorn Tears or the uh, Tamiya Lacquer Thinner. They spray beautifully. Now I'm probably going to go back and go to the uh, Mister Color line and get their propeller brown. Yeah, and one one of their interior greens. They've got a couple. They've got a Mitsubishi interior green. They've got a Nakajima interior green. Maybe I'll get them both. Yeah, I don't there know. You go. There you go. Well, um, speaking of aircraft, I picked up the uh, Airfix B25B, the uh, uh, Doolittle version. And uh, this hit the hit has been out in Europe, but for a while. But it just hit the American distributor, uh, Hornby USA, out in Washington, and then was delayed by the uh, pandemic. Uh, but it's arrived at the uh, at Scale Reproductions, and I went by and picked it up and uh, opened it up the other night. And I've got to admit that uh, it got me awfully interested and I may have to slot it into the production schedule. Uh, you know, it's kind of iconic and uh, I've got the decals to do absolutely any one of the Doolittle Raiders. And so uh, that may be coming down the road. We'll see. How about you? Well, back on that just a second, that's a, I've not seen you build a multi-engine before. Uh, I have built 
one multi-engine in my life and it was a small one. So this would be the first multi-engine propeller-driven aircraft that I have built in a long, long time since childhood. So yeah, that, that would be a big step for me. Well, for me, uh, I bought a secondhand laminator. <laughs> and exactly why did you buy a secondhand laminator? Well, I've got some uh, homebrew uh, brass etching I'm, I'm getting ready to delve into. and That's because you love photo etch so much, right? That's right. Well, we'll that's probably... We'll save that for a future uh, future podcast, but uh, that's what that's for. Um, if any anybody's read that uh, Starship Modeler article that was kind of teased in my uh, Facebook post, uh, you'll understand what the laminator's for. But other than that, I bought an HPH Models Kriegsmarine Catapult in one thirty-second scale. Oh, you pulled the trigger! <laughs> yeah, I did. Happy birthday to me! <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, that's a nice kit. Do you have the Ravel Arado? Yes, I've had oh. it a long time. <laughs> uh, I think I know what's coming. Uh, I don't know when, but at some point, yeah, that's gonna it's gonna get built. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's really really nice. It is. It is. Yeah. Happy birthday to you. Yeah, happy birthday to me. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't terribly expensive. Definitely a scale and genre there. Yep. Anything else from you? Well, yes, and this I I wholly blame on you. Well, you blame uh, the I, last one on me. Well, okay, I'll blame. I'm, hey, this is blame Mike's episode. Uh, I purchased what are called either angle plates or machine angles. They are uh, metal. 90 degree, very heavy. Um, God, I don't know how to describe them. How the hell would you describe them? They're chunks of iron at 90 degrees. They got yeah. two machine faces on them that are 90 degrees precision ground. And they're really, really handy. Yep. And uh, uh, if you have to build anything that is a 90 degree angle, like uh say, ammo boxes in the upcoming M30, uh, they come in very handy. So Micromark sells them, and I bought uh, a set of the smalls and a set of the mediums, and uh, they actually showed up at the office today, and uh, uh, I'm suitably impressed and can't, re- can't wait to give them a shot. Good addition to the toolbox. I think so, too. Our special segment tonight is uh, our modeling spaces, uh, meaning our bench, our room, or whatever we got, or whatever you've got. And we're going to have a little discussion about what our modeling spaces looks like or is equipped with. And hopefully you guys out there listening can send us some feedback as to what uh, your modeling space is like. So, Dave. Yes. We're... We're both uh, fortunate in that we have a dedicated space. Yeah. I do um, want to emphasize at the outset, Mike, that uh, frankly, it's nice to have a dedicated modeling space, but it's not required. Uh, one of the best modelers I ever knew 
was a man named Carter Scales. And Carter was a tra- your classic traveling salesman. And he was he worked the same three or four states for like 20 years on the exact same rotation. And he modeled in hotel rooms out of uh, a briefcase or suitcase in hotel rooms in the evening uh, and produced some of the most beautiful models I've ever seen in my life. So it's not a prerequisite, although I would say that for a mediocre modeler like me, having a dedicated space helps. Likewise, I have, I have a dedicated space. Um, and I think for both of us, it's it's a livable space. We're not in some auxiliary space like a garage or yeah, or or something like that. You know, and that's okay too. You, you got to take what you can get. You know, it's it's been interesting listening to the other podcasts. You know, we got the other one out of the UK, Scale Model Shed. Right. which quite li- quite literally is a shed yeah, uh, in the backs of their property because uh, I guess it's a, it's a space issue primarily, I would imagine. Well, if you, if you read a magazine called Scale Aircraft Modeling out of the UK, there is a company that sells those prefabricated sheds that is now advertising in the magazine. So it is, that is becoming an option or a go-to way to have a modeling space for modelers in the UK who don't have that space in their primary residence. So, so for us with a dedicated space, um, you got a lot of options on, on what you can do in there and you don't have, to, you don't have to worry about, well, it's not shared. You don't have to worry about sharing it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll post a few pictures of uh, my space and I'm sure Mike will of his and, uh, uh, yeah, it, it is nice to have that dedicated space. Now, another interesting thing for Dave and I is um, you just recently moved and I've moved within the last 10 years. Um, your shop now is kind of, it's operational. Yep. It's probably not com- completely refined. Now, uh, mine should be freaking gangbusters done by now, but uh <laughs> It's never done. It's never done. And I still got stuff in boxes from the move 10 years ago. Um, when we moved, it was right. The kids were transitioning into school and it's just, it's just never happened. But anyway, it's, it's coming along nicely now. Yeah. Uh, but what did you have before? At well, the old place? I, at the old place, I had a basement that was, Uh, A room that was in the basement, it was unfinished generally, Um, uh, and uh, probably a bigger space physically a little bit than what I have now, but uh, uh, the the space I moved into is uh, a completely finished uh, set of two rooms or a room and a a long storage closet. Uh, I have as I think we'll all agree, the most understanding wife in the world. And as we were looking for a new place, one of the things on the checklist was a model room for me and my hobby. Um, And we rejected a number of places, or she rejected a number of places that 
were otherwise pretty good homes, but were didn't didn't have that space for me. So shout out to Ruthie, even though she's not listening. Um, but uh, I have a dedicated modeling space with uh, eleven and a half feet of bench space, uh, which is about thirty four inches deep. Uh, now about three feet of that is taken up by my air booth or air. Yeah. My air booth. Um, but, uh, I'm, I'm very lucky to have this space where I can come down, close the door. And what I do in here is completely my, I can make it my own. And that really for me has helped me in keeping my plastic model mojo alive. What's your space like? Uh, I'm in the basement too. This newer home we're in has got a semi-finished basement. You know, it's got a, a ceiling's been put in and the walls, the block walls have been painted. There's a tile, uh, vinyl tile on the floor already. And it's still kind of a work in progress. I've kind of spread out down here and unpacked most of my things. Um, back at the old house, you may remember, I had a... We, that house had an unfinished basement and I, we finished the basement ourselves for the most part. And I had about a 12 by 12 room there. That was, it was like a laboratory. Yeah. Um, and the irony is that the person who purchased it from you was an attorney I used to work with. That is, I wish they'd let me buy those cabinets back. <laughs> yes, I know. I mentioned that to him. <laughs> um, but you know, we're both below grade in a basement. My basement's fairly dry. It's very dry, actually. And it's a, it's a comfortable space. Um, probably the next thing on the list is what, what are you actually working on? I've got a my bench that I work on primarily is was built by my grandfather about 30 years ago. Um, and it's a, it's a sit-down height workbench, like a desk, with a couple of drawers and some pegboard and corkboard. And a, and a book bookshelf above, and it's kind of where I do probably ninety nine percent of my work. Uh, since you moved into that house, did you have to build something? Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, uh, the when we moved in, we got the house. We still had our old house, so uh, for a brief period of time, I owned two homes. Um, and again. I, I let's all acknowledge I have the most understanding wife in the world. And the first thing I did was I built a bench about 36 inches high, uh, 32 or 34 inches deep, all, all down the one wall of the, of the model room. It's 11 feet uh, in length. Uh, now the last three feet of it's taken up by the air booth. And what I've used to organize is I've got uh, some of those Rubbermaid uh, three-drawer um, uh, uh, organizing products. Uh, and then I've got a one, two, three, four, five, six, nine-drawer IKEA rolling cart. And then I've got um, a, a crap ton of bookshelves because as i've mentioned in a previous episode 
my wife maintains that I'm not a modeler. I'm a librarian who occasionally models, and she's not 100% wrong in that. And uh, so I have to have a lot of bookshelf space. How about you? <laughs> uh, I've got bookshelves. Um, in, in addition to my bench, the, the plan is hopefully in the, in the coming year, I've got a, another wall along the shop here that uh, I'm going to put about 14 feet of standing height cabinets with drawers and under cabinets and a countertop, kind of like I had at the old, at the old shop, but uh, a little bit more space. I got more space here. Uh, I just haven't got around to finishing it yet. Um, for now, it's more than adequate. I'm, I'm, I got plenty of room. That's not a problem. Well, an, another aspect other than our work surface is lighting. Yes, I was going to say that to me, the, the most important thing in your workspace, regardless, I mean, it's not bench size, it's not a completely closed off room, it is lighting. Um, what I did in, uh, in uh, my model room is I painted the walls. Uh, I actually cut, color matched it off of a uh, um, an FS color. I took it to Home Depot and I said, I want this color. And it's kind of a cream color, uh, pretty close to 36, uh, 622 is I think the FS number, um, which you might recognize as the underside color in the Vietnam camo scheme for American aircraft. Um <laughs> And I've got in the uh, uh, in the light fixture in the room. It's got one main light fixture, and I got. Do you know what a corn cob LED is? Yes, I got a corn cob LED that puts off the equivalent of four hundred watt uh, a four hundred watt incandescent bulb. Uh, so it puts off a crap crap ton of light, uh, especially in these light walls. And uh, I've got a couple of uh, magnifying lamps that are clamped to the bench that I use for additional lighting when I'm doing detail work. But the thing that I think you've got to find a good spot with good lighting to model, whether it's at the kitchen table or in a hotel room or wherever it is, you've got to have good lighting, number one, especially as you get older and your eyes get a little more um, weak. How about you? Yep. Well, at the old house, I had, in a 12 by 12 room, I had three four-bulb fluorescent fixtures, which I had um, daylight spectrum bulbs in. And instead of putting diffusers over the bulbs, I use those chrome, the chrome plated lattice type inserts, which reflected the light everywhere. And I had gloss white beadboard paneling on all the walls. And it, it literally was like a laboratory. I mean, lighting was never a problem in there. Now on my bench, I've got a gooseneck and I've got two other, uh, you know, home store, shop light work light you know the clamp on stamp metal reflector kind of things right all 
all of those have uh, full spectrum CFL bulbs in them. I, I I'm not sure what I'm going to do with the new place. I I don't like I don't like the light. I have enough light, but I don't I don't like it. It's I don't like the clamp on lights because they get in the way. I I'd rather have uh, room lighting that's putting out a bunch of light. Hopefully, not a lot of heat. That's why LEDs are are a good thing now. Well, the um, corn cob LEDs are great for that because I've got this thing and it puts out a near blinding amount of light, but absolutely no heat whatsoever. Now it's funny. We talked about this in the past and, and recently, um, Anthony Goodman at, at uh, scale model podcasts had mentioned it in a conversation I've had with him. Uh, this somebody's some modeler out there has got this led hoop light that arcs over their workbench. Yes. I have seen, you seen that. Yeah, what they do is they go to uh, like Home Depot or um, Lowe's and they get what is, have you seen these little strip LED things? They're usually used for outside decorations on patios and stuff like that where you. Yeah, and there's under cabinet lighting like that, just strip lights. Yeah, exactly. Strip LED strip lights. And what they do is they take. And they create a, think of it like the St. Louis arch. Or rainbow. Or rainbow over their work area. And because this crap is, this stuff is flexible, you can just simply bend it, secure it at each end, and it will naturally form that rainbow curve. And all of the light is directed into the work surface. Now I'll say it. You've heard it before. The issue I see with that though, is the stuff immediately 90 degrees to the right and left of you is yep. shining right in your, right in your peripheral vision. Yes. I agree. I, I, I don't think that would be very comfortable. I, I see the same problem with it, and that's why I prefer the overhead corn cob, which gives me, uh, uh, especially with the light wall, cream-colored walls, a very, again, as you put it, a laboratory light setting. Now, there's, there are going to be shadows no matter what you do, and so you right. kind of have to yeah. know where they are, and you move to... Uh, when you're working, you move to eliminate them or to take advantage of them, as the case may be. But, uh, yeah, no, the, the thing I do think that you're right, that, that using that kind of arc light over your bench, over your work surface is, is that in your peripheral vision, you'll get some very bright light that you can't move. <laughs> that you can't move. Yes. What are you doing for power? I have, luckily, the the room that I have has abundant uh, uh, power sources, abundant uh, uh, plugs and all. And, of course, what I did was I put in a couple of power strips plugged into those and then mounted the power strips to the bench frame and then plugged in all of my accessories from there so that uh, I actually have my computer on my de- uh, on one end of my bench 
because among other things, I also use this for, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of an office, even though I actually have an office in my basement. Um, podcasting and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, podcasting, things like that. Um, so I have my computer plugged in. I have a refrigerator, a mini fridge plugged in, which, by the way, I, I will argue is even though I have a bar, a fully stocked bar that is no more than 10 steps away from, from the door of my model room, uh, having a mini fridge in your model room where you can immediately access your uh, modeling fluid, I'm going to argue that's an important item to have if you have a room. <laughs> so how about you? How do you handle power? Well, I've got two power strips mounted directly to my workbench, and so yeah. I've got I've got I can uh, I can plug into a wall outlet with two plugs and get ten on my workbench. So yeah, I've got that covered. Doing. Now at, at the old shop, when I finished the basement, I wired out a along along twelve feet of standing height bench counter countertop. I had four outlets, and I'm I'm going to do the same thing here. Except I'll have I'll I'll have about fourteen feet here, so. I'll probably have five or six outlets along that wall above the yeah. workbench. And uh, you can never have too much power. No, you can't. Always, always, uh, you know, I, I also have my, all my uh, computer equipment down here as well. So about half one of my power strips is all monitors and power supplies and yeah. crap for the computer. Well, if you think about power, it just, just off the top of my head, the things that I have to power are an air booth, a television, a, a mini fridge, a compressor, a computer, a couple of uh, swing lamps, uh, magnified swing lamps, and a paint shaker. So there, it's it's amazing how many items that you have in your work in your model room that require power, and it is a pain in the butt to plug and unplug. If you don't have to. So with all that, getting your space kind of defined, um, the tools that are on my bench all the time are mostly my assembly type things, uh, pliers. Yeah. My drawers are full of tweezers and sanding stuff. My pegboard's full of Tamiya tape and, and FlexiFile sanding yeah. tapes, stuff like that. Um, but then at some point when I'm done, a lot of the stuff that's on my bench will get moved off and I'll, I'll, I'll it, when I get into like paint phase, you know, then the brushes come out and the wet palette and the paints and I, I just kind of rearrange things. I don't, I, you know, I can't move from station to station because I don't, I don't have that much bench space, but I don't know. If I'd, I don't know if I'd do that anyway. Mostly my assembly tools are on the bench and tucked away are, are things I'm going to use later on, on down the, on down the line in a, in a modeling project. And, and I, I'll set up my bench task specific. And, and I mentioned the other night when we were talking, uh, as I'm building, you get to a point called critical mess. <laughs> yes, that's right. Like critical mat, like critical mass for a, an atomic energy kind of application, but critical mess, which is uh, when you lose something you just used right in front of your face on your workbench because you're in your, you know, you're in the Zen, you're in full build mode and it's gotten to be just a mess and you got to stop and clean up. But, um, I'll stop and clean up. Then when I move to a, a, a different phase of the build, I'll, I'll stop and clean up 
and put everything away and get out what I need for whatever's next. What about you? Well, I actually have, because I have so much bench space, I actually have two modeling stations. Uh, really, the reason was, among other things, occasionally Skippy or somebody comes over to model with me. And if so, then we can each be sitting side by side and uh, modeling. But when there's not somebody coming over, then what I have is... I have two separate spaces, so I can have the assembly area and I can have the painting, weathering, you know, whatever area. But I have the same problem as you as I reach critical mess. No matter how big the modeling space is, that eventually what happens is I'm modeling and instead of putting something away, I just put it on the bench and no matter how much space I have, I eventually find myself modeling <laughs> in a little eight inch by eight inch spot cramped where, <laughs> you know, and with all sorts of craps spread around. And then I've got to stop and I've got to go ahead and, and organize. Um, I completely agree with you. Organization is the way to go. You have your most used modeling items, be it uh, Tamiya Extra Thin Cement or paint brushes or flexophiles and sanding sticks closest to you, and then arrange your bench such that out from that close area is the stuff that you use less often, say, say angle machine uh, uh, tools or... Uh, you know, in the drawers in the Tupperware I have, I'm sitting here looking, I've got a drawer of wires and threads. I've got a drawer of stencils. I've got a drawer of just different types of tape. Um, and organization is the key. Uh, uh, one of our modelers in our club, Dr. Terry Hill, is a very prolific modeler. And one of the reasons he is extremely prolific is if you've ever been down in his basement where his model room is, it is hyper-organized. I mean, he has a drawer full of hornet heads for figures and a drawer full of legs and a drawer full. Of, and so he can simply reach out and get what he needs and he doesn't spend half an hour looking for what he's looking for, what he needs next. And that's the find, the thing that I find that I waste the most time on is by not being as organized as I should be, I'm like, now where the heck is that file? I know so I had it around here somewhere. What's next for your, your model area? Well, I just recently reached critical mess, and so I had to stop and organized my bench and, and put things away that I had gotten out, used, and then just simply sat down on the bench instead of um, instead of putting them back where I got them. Um, I think that probably one other area I do want to, to touch on is that modeling can be a little bit solitary and 
I find that if I'm listening to music or listening to TV, I can't really watch TV because that's too distracting. I, I have mounted to the wall in my model room. I actually have a television. And, you know, back before the pandemic, if there was uh, a football game on or a baseball game on, I can put that on. I don't have to watch it. I can listen to it and model. Or I've got a CD player where I'll listen to music. Um, mostly I listen to big band music, uh, occasionally some some R&B, although I find that up-tempo music is, is actually makes me want to... <laughs> it's amazing. You start to try and build the, the tempo, and so it's not always as... Zen as, as it should be. Uh, but I do think those are important as opposed to, at least for me, now different people are different. Um, at least for me, I, I want something on in the background, music, sports, um, a podcast. I'll listen to On the Bench or Scale Model podcast while I'm while I'm modeling. And that's a great way to listen to something while I'm, while I'm modeling. And it's kind of multitasking, but it's not, there's a, a certain Zen that I get out of it. And actually I find that I build better and I model better when I'm doing something like that. Uh, what's your experience as far as well, when you model? When I model, I, I think you raise a good point. And in fact, one of our listeners broached this topic on the Facebook page about what we're listening to. And for me, I also, I do a lot of big band music. I do a lot of jazz of all types, you know, modern jazz, fusion jazz. I like to keep it a little bit mellow because I, I, I know some modelers in our club who like are into the, the, the metal and the harder stuff. And I just, I don't see how they model while they're listening to that. I just, I just can't do it. Neither do I. In fact, in fact, I'm not sure how you model, depending on what jazz you're listening to. Um, some jazz can be pretty frenetic, and I'm not sure I could model. Based on the music I grew up with, the time I you know came of age, high school, teenage years, uh, I listened to a lot of uh, new wave and synth pop kind of stuff from bands from the late '70s through the through the mid and late '80s. And that's, that's not too harsh. That's, that's pretty tame. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I can't watch anything. And I listen to the other podcasts that you mentioned and that's, that's the kind of thing I listen to. Yeah. I do listen to a lot of, a lot of big bands from the fort, a lot of Glenn Miller. I, I, I like that stuff a lot. So he's got one called in the, in the mood. Exactly. It's one of my favorites. I'm, I'm like you, you can't, if I put a movie on that I've never seen before, I will find myself watching the movie rather than modeling. But there are some TV shows or some movies that I can put on that I have seen so much that I don't have to look. I can listen. It's almost in a way like radio to me. Um, there's an old 80s TV show called or a late 80s, early 90s TV shows called Wings that was a sitcom that 
my father and I watched a lot together and I've seen every episode 50 times at least. And I can put a, I can put a DVD of that in and I don't have to watch it because I've seen it so many times. I know what it is, but for some reason I enjoy the jokes and the humor and the stuff without ever actually having to look up and see it. So there are some TV shows that I can do that with. But in general, in fact, the other night I was uh, modeling to one of the John Wick movies. Um, but in general, TV and movies are too distracting for me, whereas music and podcasts Well, are not. to the folks listening to all this, send us some shots of your workspace, your workbench, and tell us what you like and don't like. And uh, just be an interesting discussion for the community, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I want to see what other people's spaces look like. So, uh, Mike, you, you have any shout outs for the month? I do have one. I have a shout out. My shout out is to Ian Kaisers from uh, On the Bench. So uh, tell us why. This gets into my my aircraft and catapult project. Um, I got to paint this thing at some point, right? Yeah. And you had informed me that uh, <laughs> you had informed me that in, yes, Imperial Japanese Navy grays are a bit nuanced. And uh, I was like, well, maybe I ought to look into this a little more. I knew Ian had built some uh, Japanese. He just finished a Japanese aircraft carrier, I think. And I Facebook messaged Ian regarding the color of, for the two ships that carried this particular catapult. And uh, he provided me with some pretty precise and exact information. And Ian took care of me. And I think, uh, Ian, you are the uh, official scale modeler ambassador to Kentucky now from Australia. So I, I appreciate it. Um, I got a lot to learn in this catapult rabbit hole I'm going down and uh, you've helped me take the first steps. So thank you. Well, there is a ton of that information out there and guys who, you know, and again, I think I've said this before in you run into the occasional butthole, but in general modelers are the, some of the best people you'll ever meet because they have information that is that it interests them and they want to share it they're willing to tell anybody who asks hey here's what i know and and you know you that's pr that's pretty damn amazing it really is and i really i run that i run into that quite a bit and yeah ian took care of me i appreciate it thank you well my shout out of the month uh frankly is totally uh, your fault. It's Goodman Models, um, uh, the super sanding blocks that uh, uh, that not only you had obtained from them and used and uh, highly praised, uh, you wrote a review of them for our uh, club news local club newsletter uh, that I've also submitted over to the IPMS Journal and it convinced me I needed them. So I went ahead and ordered them. And uh, I've got to say the uh, service has been fantastic. I got an email telling me they got my order. I got an email telling me that they've shipped the goods. 
Um, now, this is, you know, from Canada, so you, you, you never know what Canada Post is going to do or how quickly they're going to get them over to uh, the U.S. Postal Service for delivery. But uh, uh, I, I, you know, I can't wait. And so I want to give the Goodman a shout out and uh, say thank you for the good service. All right. Anything else? That's it. Well, we're running kind of long here. So, Dave, we probably wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, you know what they say. So many kids. So little time, Dave. You take it easy, Mike. All right. Thank you. Thank you.